Lin mai haere mai, my name is Jeremy, and this is the Maxim Institute Podcast. This year, our Sir John Graham Lecture was due to be delivered by Associate Professor Tom Simpson. Titled Rebuilding Trusts, Populists, Elitists, and the Future of Our Democracy, Tom was joining us to speak from his over a decade of study on the idea of trust, and how it sits at the core of issues of political polarization that have challenged the foundations of democratic societies in recent years. Currently an Associate Professor of Philosophy and Public Policy at the Blatvinick School of Government at the University of Oxford, Tom studied at Cambridge University for his BA, his MPhil and PhD, and somehow, between degrees, he found the time to be an officer with the Royal Marines Commandos for five years. While COVID-19 has delayed Tom's visit to deliver the Sir John Graham Lecture until 2021, we didn't want to miss the opportunity to speak about these ideas this year, as they've only become more relevant and pressing in the context of the COVID-19 pandemic and the way that nations have responded to the extreme pressures of lockdown, emergency powers, and fighting an invisible threat. In this discussion, you'll also hear the voice of New Zealand academic Dr Richard Eakins, who's Professor of Law and Constitutional Government at Oxford University and the head of the Judicial Power Project at Policy Exchange. Keen-eyed friends of Maxim Institute may actually recognise Richard's name as he authored several papers for us as a research fellow while he was a senior lecturer at the University of Auckland. Thomas and Richard are colleagues at Oxford and also great friends, and I hope you'll enjoy sitting in for this conversation as much as I did when we recorded it. Unfortunately, I have to admit, there is a slight technical issue with some of the audio, which does affect the quality of some of what you'll hear. We've edited around this as much as possible, but we've left in what we need to in order to make sure that you can follow what's being said. Our apologies, we'll make sure it doesn't happen again. For now, enjoy the conversation and stick around afterwards to find out more details about how you can make sure you're there for Tom's Sir John Graham Lecture next year in 2021. Tom, I thought we'd just start with you and just ask what may seem to be an obvious question, but I thought it's worth asking. Why is it that you picked the topic of trust to devote so much of your time and energy to? Uh, What is it about that that sort of piqued your attention? So I've been working on trust for a number of years and uh, maybe even too long. I started thinking about it almost accidentally. And so this was in summer of 2007. I just left the military after five years. I'd been very interested in what's called epistemology, the theory of knowledge, And the history of Western philosophy thinks about knowledge in a very individualistic manner. So what is it that I can discover? And the paradigm for this is Descartes, who tries to work out knowledge from the foundations upwards. And that just seemed to me deeply discrepant with how life actually was, that we were just constitutively, we are constitutively dependent on others for what we know. So I I started from there. That's That's, as it were, a philosopher's instinct. And as I came to think about it, it seemed to me that this dependence on others was just a far wider reaching phenomenon than just knowledge. And I started working in the summer of 2008 for um, a banker in the city of London who was interested in what moral questions might be raised by banking and whether there was any light that we could shed on this. And I was thinking about trust in relation to this. So summer of 2008... Yeah, at a pretty significant time for the banking industry. <laughs> right. So I I had no idea about this. I, absolutely no idea. I started thinking about it in June and I was then logging on. So in the UK, the uh, it's sometimes referred to as the nation's Tannoy service, the, the uh, Today programme on Radio 4. And I'd be listening to, listening to Radio 4 and I could hear the panic in their voices as we may not have a payment system by the afternoon. That was as the financial crisis was taking root, as Lehman Brothers went down and there was this question of the dominoes that were going on. And it suddenly became very evident that this trust was a phenomenon that 
permeated our economic activity, permeated our scientific activity, which, as it, as it were, that's where I'd come from. And with further reflection, it came to be clear that it permeates our political activity, our social activity. And it was really in retrospect that I saw that the military, uh, in a way, crystallises a lot of these dilemmas of trust very dramatically, because soldiers ultimately put their lives on the line, and they do so relying on their colleagues to work with them for that. And there's very thick cultures of trust which are built up within military units precisely to enable that. And I suppose I became interested in what is the foundation of trust as a notion, that's a philosopher's question, and then what are the forms of social activity that this enables more widely? I'll throw another philosopher's question at you because I think I, I really like the idea that you start with that it's an epistemological question which is you know how, how do we know and so uh, another philosopher's question which I think that you will probably not like it all and feel free to reframe. Um, but what is trust? So we talk about it and, and, and I mean, I think we can look at it. I can say, oh, I, you know, I don't trust her or I, I don't think he's very trustworthy or I know him, I trust him. Or even I can trust that, you know, when I go to the supermarket, there will be tomatoes. There are all these different kinds of trust. So maybe could you sort of position those different types of trust from what you've worked on and, and, and maybe tell us a bit more about how those types of trust affect us by their presence or their lack in our communities and society. Okay, great. So that is that is a philosopher's question, and I'm excited to address that. <laughs> um, uh, and I'll do so in as, as non-boring a way as possible. The idea of what trust is, there's something over and above simply relying on other people. And that's, in a, in a way, that's where the discussion of trust gets going. That's that's where we, where we try and think about what's going on. So what So what is going on? What is the difference between it? Well, there are at least three different approaches that you might take, each of which have their advantages and disadvantages. So one would be to see trust as a fundamentally an emotional feeling. It's, it's reliance plus some kind of emotional stance. So you might think that um, there's a kind of optimism about the other person, there's, there's, that the other person will come through, that there's maybe goodwill on both parts. The person who trusts another has goodwill towards that person. I'm curious as to the difference between a sort of sense of reliability and a sense of trust. You can tell me if I'm going too far between different types of trust here. But like I said before, you know, if I if I trust that there's going to be tomatoes at the supermarket um, and I'm not worried about the, you know, I, I don't have to go today, I can go tomorrow. Is that just reliability or is or is that actually trust? Good. So this brings us to the second um, second way of thinking about trust, which is um, it was seen as a rational calculation of the likelihood of the other person coming through, or in your case, the likelihood of the tomatoes being there. And this, and so on this view of trust, what really counts for for making trust sensible or appropriate is that the other person is trustworthy. So you want to know that the other person is going to be trustworthy. If you've got evidence for that, then that will make trust appropriate. The mechanism for trust that's involved, or at least the mechanism for, a lot, for reliance that's involved, is one that may actually be concealed. So the con man is not fully disclosing what's going on to the victim. And you could have other forms of dependence which, uh, which rely on that same kind, of, same kind of concealment. So if I lie. And... It looks like you could have rash, rational reliance, but which is simply which is based on a kind of manipulation of the other person, and that those forms of manipulation are not going to be compatible with trust. 
And in fact, we can also see that it's not just manipulation or concealment. You could also have forms of dependence which are coercive, they rely on threats. So it might be that, um, you know, I'm, I'm going shopping, uh, other, other shoppers trust me not to inject the tomatoes with poison, <laughs> like that would be a really antisocial thing to do. Um, does the shop trust me to do that? Well, they might do, uh, or they might put security guards there. And if they put security guards there, then it's not trust. So it, look, so it looks like the mechanism about how trust works is it's something, it's something that everyone involved can acknowledge. It's open, it's public, it's non-coercive. And that really brings us on to the third way that you might um, uh, think about trust, which I think is ultimately the way uh, that I come down. And this is to see trust as fundamentally a kind of moral, uh, that there's a kind of moral expectation which leads to the basis for reliance. So the paradigm for this would be a promise. Um, I promise to you, I promise to have a chat with you, and uh, you now expect it of me, you know, I'm obliged to do this. And there's something about my giving my word, there's something about the, the, the reliance that you come to have on me because I've given my word that grounds this form of trust. And I think that's the fundamental, as it were, that's the heart of, of our trust practices. And that, that's not to say that, that every instance of trust always has this. There can be lots of many different kinds of trust. Trust can have different forms, different bases in different situations. But I think that's the most central and in a way the most socially important form of trust that we have. Isn't that a bit inflated though? So why not just think, I mean, it is your confidence that such and such will happen, so that another person or agent or group is going to act in a certain way. And sometimes that is uh, because of their moral character or something else. Other times it's just the incentive structure is, is ordered in the right sort of a way. Um, do you have to differentiate between those? I mean, it looks like you are. It's a, it's a moralized idea in a sense. It's the expectation about uh, why the person who was trusted will act in a certain way. Good. So it's, it's going to be a question as to, there's going to be a spectrum of instances. So there's high intensity, as it were, interpersonal relationships. And then we're moving down into more forms of habit um, at, at other times. And there's going to be an alignment of incentives. But I think the, the moment we're headed into a purely incentive-based um, form of engagement, I think that's the point at which we step out of, out of, out of, um, out of, out of a trusting interaction. And um, and so, I, I, so there's very there's going to be very subtle instances where the in, where incentives align and accompany some kind of moral expectation, but if they displace it, then it ceases to be then it ceases to be trust. I, I think, on my view, if the incentives are out of line, then that's going to place a big question mark over the trust relationship, isn't it? Even with the well, maybe not in all relationships. But even when you've got other grounds for trust, if you know the incentives are running in the wrong direction, it's a cause for worry, at least. <laughs> yeah, of course, it's going, to be, it's going to be a concern. We've then got to think about what the... So the term incentives is quite a plastic one. We can use it in different ways. So the paradigm is money. You know, I offer you some money. Um, but we sometimes use it in a more general sense just to mean like a reason that I have. Um, so something that's kind of in the middle will be something like... Uh, I make a promise to you to do something and you there's no money riding on it, but you will think badly of me if if I renege on it. Now, in what sense is you thinking badly of me? Is that an incentive? I mean, you might describe it like that. It, it's an extension of the term. It feels like that's going to be pretty central to a lot of instances of trust. And then at what point is you're thinking badly of me? Is that a 
as it were, a prime, a cue for me to feel guilty. You know, I suddenly realise that I ought to feel guilty. And the fact that I feel... Is my feeling guilty? Is that an incentive? I don't know. If I really want to kind of push the language, then I might use it in that way. But it it seems to me that misdescribes the phenomena. Really, what's going on is my moral self-awareness is kicking in at that point. I want to sort of just bring it out from interpersonal and, and the personal um, and kind of go into the second part of this question, which is how does a lack of or the presence of trust, can you give us some sort of practical examples of how this plays out in societies that are high trust or low trust environments and, and kind of why is it necessary? What is it in society that, that actually does rely on trust itself? So we started off thinking about trust between individuals, between two people, and then we're wanting to think about is there, is there a generalised sense of trust that would characterise a society? And the, the starting point for that would be just on average, if I meet someone, are they likely more likely to be trustworthy or not, just in very crude binary terms. And social scientists for many years now have been asking a question which in effect tries to capture this. So they say, in in general, do you think most people can be trusted or not enough people can be trusted in your society? And then you get fluctuating levels um, ac- according to this and you can track it over time. The former Soviet bloc countries, for instance, tend to do very poorly on this. Quite a lot of Mediterranean, Southern European cultures will tend to do poorly. Northern European cultures Scandinavia is always right at the top of the list. And Japan, interestingly, very high as well. New Zealand's quite high on the list too. (laughs) (laughs) Alarmingly, there's been gradual reductions across all countries in the proportion of people who say that, generally speaking, you can can rely on trust. Now, why does does this matter? So at at the macro level, we can track through the economic impact, for instance, of trust. So one study finds that high levels of trust are worth about 2% of GDP. So in the aggregate, this makes a difference. Now, why does it make a difference? Well, you can start off at the um, uh, in economic terms by thinking about the difference that trust makes to tra- what's called transaction costs. So if, um, if one company is transacting with another, an individual is transacting with another, how, how extensive a contract do you need or how much of the basis of the relationship can be done without a contract, done on the basis of a shared understanding and a willingness to be flexible with each other. And the lawyers do very well out of low trust because there's big contracts that need to be drawn up. Um, And in a high trust context where there's established relationship or both established relationship and the possibility of forming a relationship very quickly, you can just short-circuit non-productive economic activity and go straight to that. So that's a very clear example. Then you move into, as it were, softer examples. So one of the characteristics of most professional relationships is that the professional is acting on behalf of the person that they're advising. So this is true for doctors, it's true for lawyers, um, it's true for accountants, financial advisors. And most of these relationships have the possibility of incentive misalignment. So a contrast case would be the medical, the healthcare system in a private insurance based context like the US versus a solely state funded context, which is what the UK is much closer to. And in a in a marketized system, the doctor can make money out of advising patients to go through procedures which are not strictly in that individual's medical interest. 
And what the professional relationship does is it should say that even though I have these potential incentives not to advise you in what's in your best interest, nonetheless, the principle at stake is that I should be acting on your behalf and working for you. And so whenever you get these, these potential misalignments between what's in the best interest of the client, what's in the best interest of the practitioner, the professional, you then trust becomes of significant uh, social importance at that point. Yeah, no, I, I just want to um, question the, the point about the lawyers uh, doing well out of the trust environment, which is obviously partly true, but I wonder if it, I mean, if the, if the environment's low trust enough, the lawyers aren't going to be in business, aren't going to be able to play a role in a way. It does rely on a certain willingness to trust, and I mean, as you say, to trust the lawyers themselves, that they'll be bounded professionally by a, a certain kind of ethos. A lot of the contractual arrangements, I think, will rely partly on, uh, we won't need to rely on these very often. Uh, they'll be stop, they'll frame things, uh, etc. I mean, that the, that the law is a compensating feature for a lack of trust uh, is, I think, certainly true, but that's a, it's a bolster and support for it must be true as well. Can I just pick up on that? So one of the features is it looks like you never actually do away with trust. So at, at the end of the, or maybe in a more restrictive fashion, you, you're always relying on other people. So in the legal context, you can contract maybe a way of avoiding, of kind of displacing trust for the two people who are contracting. But what you simply do is you displace trust onto those who are enforcing the law. And so firstly, that's the legal practitioners and actually ultimately it's the judges. So one of the striking things is if you have a transactional culture all the way down, suddenly you get questions like, can I buy the judge? And if I can buy the judge, things we're in a really, really bad situation. The low trust societies tend to also be societies where corruption is a real challenge. And that, that those two things probably feed each other, that, uh, that high levels of corruption mean low levels of trust. And also because there's low levels of trust, there's low levels of a kind of thick normative framework, which says that people are expected to behave in a particular way. That means that corruption is facilitated. So low levels of trust outside of family, clan, or those with whom you have a immediate interest. Yeah, great. We then need to begin to be more subtle and distinguish what are the potential bases for trust. And there can be particularistic bases for trust where you have some kind of in-group loyalty and because you and I, you know, have, are marked by the same in-group feature, that's a basis for, for trust. And the magic moment comes when that, as it were, is left behind and you have a universalistic basis for trust that the shared moral culture that we're in is one that uh, everyone is expected to be trustworthy because you're expected to be trustworthy. That's the reason for it, that, you know, you're, you're expected to comply with your obligations. And, um, and so shifting from a particularistic basis for trust to a generalised basis for trust is a, um, uh, that how that happens, that's really where the money is, so to speak. That, that's, that's the magic moment. At the risk of asking you to be a historian, are there particular points in different cultural histories that you can point to as going, ah, that's actually, that was crucial for developing a culture of trust, a, high, a culture of high trust or, or this, these kind of cultural roots. And Richard, I'm also interested in kind of different cultural ideas of justice as well, because I think that, you know, pointing to the courts and the rule of law and, and those sorts of things that, you know, we have different, different case law and different kind of bases for law in different cultures, the sort of sense that people are generally trustworthy and that if I go to, you know, in New Zealand, if I go before a judge, I'm pretty sure even if, you know, that if he has a, um, a personal interest in the case, he'll recuse himself, um, that there will be a, a dispassionate application of these kind of higher 
levels or higher morals than just sort of personal loyalty and kind of where that comes from? Well, that's a tricky question. Obviously, not everywhere has it. Uh, and New Zealand's had the, the good fortune to um, partly inherit it and then um, partly hold on to it. And how did the, the English and the British get it? Well, it takes a while and you've got a whole series of sort of contingent connections, I think, uh, historical moments, but where people clearly um, valued the fact that uh, that justice couldn't be bought, um, that they could rely on one another to enforce rules against each other. They were willing to take seriously the, the failure to do so. And enough people caring about carrying that forward, which I think is, is crucial. I mean, obviously, this is a, this is a natural instinct to, uh, to, to take fairness seriously, I think, but whether it gets maintained and built up into something larger, um, that takes some time. So, I mean, you can go one long way back, think about the, the significance, I mean, whether juries are a, a great idea as a sort of way of finding the facts in criminal trials. They clearly involve us jointly in our decision-making and the fact that you can rely on your, on your fellow um, citizens to, to give you justice or to be a restraint on a tyrannical state. That helps contribute to an idea that we're, we're sort of all in it together. And then if you start to, to distinguish yourself as being committed to this, this way of doing things, then you, you might take it more seriously, even if, of course, you hope... Uh, every other community also will start to care as well. Certainly in the UK, we've got the common law tradition and that's represented around the world. And it also seems like most tribal village-based forms of organisation will also have situations where people gather together to conduct a case and sort of work out what the rights and wrongs of a particular situation are. What marks the divergence between the common law tradition as we have it versus just simply small-scale Tribal gathering, yeah. Well, I mean, the, I mean, the common law begins, uh, time out of memory, uh, with with Henry II sending out his judges, uh, and and that the fact that England had um, has one of the oldest continuous monarchies and had, a, frankly, a very strong monarchy and compared to other um, sort of neighbouring European states is pretty significant. So it's an instrument of royal justice. It's a way of building up the power and authority of the king to. Uh, present yourself as as willing to give justice to all all comers, and it's a common law because uh, the king's justice is applied across the whole place. It's not just particular to uh, our particular custom here and there. And so, I mean, the, the big worry that you should have, and that people do have, with uh, sort of the um, just the village gathering together and giving justice is obviously that it's very easy for that to become particular or biased or score settling or inefficient as well. And so that there is. Uh, um, a, an authority above that's standing behind. You know, so why do you take seriously the the king's judges when he arrive when they arrive? Uh, well, because they're backed by the authority of the king, and the king has a certain uh, self understanding of his role in relation to the duty to give justice. That he's answerable to God. That he's a certain image of a Christian king, etc. I mean, obviously, it's off sometimes and often observed in the breach. But you know, the image matters, and it's an image that uh, both is morally attractive, but also that. If you play your part in it, you do your bit to to build up the monarchy, to build up the sort of the capacity of the realm to live um, peacefully together. So it, it begins with um, with a higher authority in a way, but then one that gets received as being well, this is doing a valuable thing. Uh, we shouldn't resist this in the same way we might resist some other kind of. Uh, it's not just tax collectors showing up, although they show up too, but it's it's justice arriving. And that, that rule of law connection is fascinating because in a way that's the story about how the rule of law emerges. So Jeremy, just going back to your question, one of the, it, it's harder to put your finger on when cultures of high trust emerge precisely because they take so long to grow. They're, it's a deeply organic process, but it's easier to put the finger on when uh, trust is lost. 
and so uh, so actually Eastern Europe is is a is a feat is a important case study in that because the um, the, the the trauma of uh, Soviet times and uh, and the kind of surveillance state police state uh, had a deeply trust shattering effect and and those countries are really uh, have been really struggling to emerge out of that. There's another body of literature which was the social capital literature from the 1990s. So Robert Putnam's book Bowling Alone is often seen as foundational for this. And what Putnam and so Putnam's analogy is is uh, he goes to the Tenpin Bowling Alley and he just sees a lot of people bowling alone, whereas 20 or 30 years previously they might have been bowling in clubs. And it was the it was the withering of forms of civil association that he was really concerned about. I think it's a deep insight that. And then the question is what what is the role that these civil associations play? And I think there's three distinct roles that they can do. So one is, in practical terms of politics, they are a source of power that can resist the state. So the, the state, conventionally understood as this very significant form of power, can impose itself. And individuals are not able to resist it. So individuals need to be able to organise, to join together in order to hold the state to account. And civil associations provide the means by which that happens. They, they provide the means for voice. Uh, they provide, the, as it were, the habits for people to, to join together in order to, in order to provide countervailing power to the state. In practical terms, um, if the state has no form of resistance, it's going to, it's going to become abusive and, do, and, and overextend its power. So I think the other, two form, the other two really important respects in which civil society institutions, both of the informal kind and the formal kind that you're talking about, matter so one is some some of them hold up moral ideals so religious institutions are particularly in the business of holding up moral ideals but it's not only religious institutions other charities other other forms of association may hold up um a, a, a set of a kind of um the, these are the way we think these this is the way that we think about the world and it's the we and it's the it's the it's the story about who we are, where we've come from, uh, and what we think right right conduct looks like. And then the second thing that they do is they form people. So they they're processes of education and of character formation, and they provide a context in which you can get things wrong, and you can be corrected in a in the context of a hopefully a nurturing, compassionate environment. And you've got models to aspire to and you can take your place in then handing on the culture that's that's transmitted. So I think I think one of the really dangerous um or sort of challenging situations that we're in now is this is a general sense that these mediating institutions uh, as Peter Berger and and, and um uh, Richard Newhouse called it these mediating institutions are under real pressure and that will have a long-term effect on on political health and the prospects of a high trust society. There is a traditional role for for the um uh, the state and the, the sort of highest level of authority in in protecting individuals against intermediary associations as well. So it's sort of a two way process there. The, or the, the rightful claim on the part of a of a king is I'll I'll protect uh, the the ordinary people from their from their feudal overlords from the barons. Um, and maybe now the equivalent is uh, the state uh, purports to to protect us against um, uh, sort of abusive companies or someone. Uh, and to getting that balance right is, is really quite tricky. That's part of the appeal that the, the state makes to, to authority and trust, I think. 
In one of your writings, Tom, you say that the central thought I am pursuing is that moral commitment is one of the central bases for rational trust. Shared moral norms really are the glue that holds society together. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like in Western postmodern society, it seems almost ludicrous to suggest that society kind of must group around a shared moral norm. We've lost common faith, common religion, uh, and, and in many ways, a common sense of being able to even say this is what is right or wrong, um, in, in a moral context at least. Although I think that there's been, in recent times, there's been sort of a, a resurgence of, um, of a new moral language. Um, but in a, a postmodern sensibility of uh, personal kind of uh, truth and personal belief uh, that isn't necessarily shared across these kinds of thriving civil associations or institutions, does it mean that we're doomed, that we just can't build trust if we don't have those? Uh, that is a big question. The question, to be clear, is: Are we all doomed? <laughs> Richard, what, what do you what do you think? Well, I, I think I think um, you you touched on this partly, Jeremy. But uh, you know, reports of the death of right and wrong may be overblown, and I don't just mean because there's, there's, there seems to be plenty of moralising going on in our our present world. Uh, some of it good, some of it bad, and I think actually a lot of um, there still is a lot of shared uh, moral understanding and commitment. Um, even if it doesn't often go by that name. It's premature to declare the victory of postmodernism. Uh, a lot of, a great many of the things we do together, quite rightly, are anchored in uh, true moral insights and commitments. And people might get embarrassed if they get called moral insights and commitments, but that's really what they are. Uh, they're a conviction that you, that you don't treat people this way, or this is the right way to act in this uh, sort of state. And the fact that we don't have as solid a grasp of moral language and insight as as one should, is a problem, I think. And and I think, you know, the sort of a decaying aspect to this, although, you know, never a sort of a, assume things can't be renewed and, and restored, of course. Yeah, the society is in trouble if the engines um, that sort of uh, fuel the, excuse me, mix the metaphor badly, is the grounds of um, uh, shared commitment and sort of shared moral understanding um, run out. Uh, but you can go, go a while without being quite clear on what the grounds are, I think even if at some point you will run into trouble. Obviously, I fundamentally agree with everything you said, Richard. I mean, so, so what's, it, what's the phrase? Nature abhors a vacuum. And I think humanity, we, are, we abhor, as it were, a moral vacuum. And we have had this, actually, just my own biography, you know, came of age in the 90s, early noughties. I think historians will look back and see this as a profoundly weird time when we kind of got on with consumption it was we were in a sort of post-religious pre pre-political post-political moment sort of you know Tony Blair was triangulating here in the UK bit of this bit of that and that was the kind of zeitgeist elsewhere and 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 I think the the attempt to have a public square which doesn't have a clear moral basis is clearly being rejected right now political polarization is really a, a reflection of two competing conceptions of what the moral basis for that public square should be, I think. I mean, what's our future? So one, one future is we have ongoing... I mean, I'm, I'm very concerned by political polarisation. I think, I think we're in an extremely dangerous situation. And there is a possible equilibrium of internecine conflict for some period of time, just because the instincts, the human instincts that political polarisation draws on are very deep human instincts and both the right and the left represent as it were enduring features of 
humanity. Success previously has depended in part on a substrata of agreement which crosses that. And I think one of the challenges for people of goodwill, in particular across the political spectrum, is to really focus on rebuilding that substrata of, 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 of agreement and then finding ways to, to, to disagree well at points of controversy. How that, how that works, I, I, is, that's a harder, harder question. I even look at the, the phrase you used, the public square. It strikes me that uh, in previous iterations of society and previous generations, uh, place was a far greater definer of our identity. There's uh, even ideas of national religion or fighting for your country or you know delineations of sort of city, town, state, nation. It seems that now our identities are much more shaped in an online social context, especially in our teenage years, meaning that you know the shared morals or the beliefs that you develop in that sort of key developing stage um, have a much greater opportunity to be sort of refined by people who have no connection to you in a physical sense no geographic connection to you but you can you can find this sort of very key identity forming and loyalty forming sense of community uh sort of diaspora all around the world what's that interplay between identity and where you sort of draw your loyalty from or to where you sort of call your loyalty back to um and who you can share have that shared basis of trust with I mean, who you share your life with clearly matters. You know, a sort of political community is uh, is reliant on sharing your lives with one another sufficiently to think you've got a common good and that it's worth protecting, and that you you can rely on one another on on your your fellow citizens to play their part, and that you want to, and you're not just going to pursue entirely sort of um, atrophied individual or it's not atrophied, is it? Because they, there still is a, a, a community here. It's just um, uh, sort of played out across the internet and around the world, and I think that. That can coexist, that sort of um, uh, identity elsewhere or partial identity elsewhere with a pretty robust uh, um, groundedness in a place and a, a sort of a, a community with a history. Um, but they can, they could come apart and maybe maybe that's what we've been seeing. Although I think, you know, possibly place is making, is having a comeback. Uh, our present time is not one of, um, of free travel and uh, open borders just now well i think even in even in just the, the just the brexit debate i think you saw a battle um between a global or a, at least a european identity of this sort of you know technocratic um you know this is the right way of living for the future versus a a real backlash of place um place sovereignty uh, or at least that's my sort of you know new zealand eyes looking over the <laughs> over the other side of the world and i'm perfectly happy to be corrected on that no, I think you saw something that was there. Um, uh, there's a great book, um, which I'm going to mangle the title of, um, Somewheres Versus Anywheres, I think. The Road to Somewhere. D- David Goodman. The Road to Somewhere. Road to Thank somewhere. you. Yeah. <laughs> I should apologise to David for, for getting his book. The difference between uh, the type of person who is who is relatively more defined and grounded in a particular location and community and those who have, in a sense, more open horizons and can move more readily between global centres of, of education and capital and so on. And obviously this is a pretty pretty broad distinction, but there is something to it. There is also, there's a weirdness, there's a paradox there in that the psychological instinct towards somewhere versus anywhere, which I, th- I think I think Goodhart's really put his finger on something very significant there as a, as a, as a kind of orientation towards the world. But the distinction between somewheres and anywheres is, as it were, something you could find in most societies. <laughs> And highly international institutions, such as elite universities, have a habit of drawing uh, people from across the world, which is great. And it's also tends to be quite a unique, self-selected 
uh, group of people who come from across the world, which tend to be those with anywhere broadly cosmopolitan kind of senses of themselves and identities. And in a way, one of the challenges is to find societies which are able to hold together the kind of the instinctive desires both of the somewheres and of the anywheres. So there is going to be international fluidity of some kind. You know, clearly we can't go go to autarky if that ever existed. And there's going, there's going to be international cross fertilization, and that's that's clearly you know there's tremendous upsides that come with that. And at the same time, we need to find a stable settlement where where as it were the somewheres, you know, large blocks of the population who feel a rooted sense of belonging feel comfortable and feel like they've got a sense of continuity and inheritance and their their place in the world is respected so one of the extraordinary figures from david goodhart's book is that i think 60 percent of brits live within 14 miles of where they grew up that's a huge proportion so that i mean that really speaks to something quite profound about your kind of way you know and locality and place matters one of the complexities is that we we now live in an anglophone world which this conversation represents so the english language the internet flattens international boundaries where language is shared and the english language is shared internationally and particularly in uk us new zealand australia uh, but where language is not shared you get very discrete discourses emerging and um, so I think we can, I, I think our particular place, as in part of the Anglophone world, we can oversee, over, kind of oversee the commonalities that are emerging. So in a way, I think the world is actually on divergent paths right now. So I think the Anglophone world is engulfed in highly polarised culture war and, play, and place has become itself part of the points of conflict within that. <laughs> What's your attitude towards the history of your place? Is it fundamentally one of condemnation or fundamentally one of approval? That's a kind of... That's a distinct, and obviously the reality is somewhere in the middle. You know, there are bad things and there are good things, but that instinct is one of the one of the points of tension. But place at its best holds out the prospect of a basis of solidarity which crosses other social cleavages. Can you tell us what the um, the rest of the world's trajectory is? You've dealt with the Anglophone world. Combination of national identity, uh, reassertion of national heritage, and probably pragmatic uh, sort of power, real politic, if I can put it that way. Um, that would be my that would be my sense, and a lot of it's actually, and this is conscious on the part of some. It's it, it's in reaction to turmoil in the West. You know, the history of the West is partly a history of universalism and particularism. Maybe that's the history of the world, but the West in particular, because of the significance of Christianity, where the collapse of Rome is the end of a universal a sort of universalistic political project, and the need to build up slowly and painstakingly particular ones. You know, it matters that there's a kingdom in England. Uh, because people can live better if there is. Otherwise, you know, they're exposed to all sorts of tyranny and um, incursion and so on. And, and that, that there isn't a kingdom in France for a while is a moral tragedy. You've got to build one up. It's a serious civilizational prospect. But, you know, it's a, there's a shared church and, and no one can really, for a moment, hold out the idea there isn't a really serious universal project un, underway. So that, that tension, well, it's not tension, it's just there's more than one... Uh, good thing in the world, uh, and that, that that forms us. So clearly there's this tension between the universalistic and the particular. How do we hold these together? Augustine's framework, I think, is really helpful here. So one of Augustine's thoughts is that we have an order of loves. What's the order of our loves? There are different forms of attachment, forms of love that we have. We have civic loves, so those for the people we live amongst, for the communities that we're part of. We have familial loves, those those that we commit our lives to as parents, children we bring up, the, and the extended family as well. 
And then we have love, love to God, divine love. And the order of love, I, th I think, I w well, I don't know if Augustine does this. So Simpson does this. <laughs> so the order of love would be divine love first, familial love, and then civic love. And, and I think when you get the order of loves wrong, so in Augustine's terminology, you then get idolatry. That's when things really, when, 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 when the wheels come off. And so the idolatry of the nation is a that's a continual danger and a threat that we that that, that we face, and that that has clearly very pathological expressions. And you, so you need something else to kind of hold that civic love to account on the basis of. If you think seriously about the goods that are in play and how other people can secure them and advance them, uh, you know, there's there's pretty robust common good that just can't be secured without some kind of uh, all-encompassing. All-encompassing is too strong. Maybe not. Um, complete communities, you know, Aristotle's line, and it gets you a long way. Uh, um, you know, you need you need a state, and you need the, a pretty robust shared form of life therein. But obviously, states are not no, not one single state, and they've got to engage with one another and collective projects to some extent. Even if those are just the maintenance of peace, they're probably much more robust than that. So there's, there's a good uh, above and beyond. But the trick is trying to advance that without abandoning the, the things further down. And I think that's the, the real challenge, to hold on to more than one good and to see the, the conditions under which they can be secured and not neglect them. We've done a lot of talking around kings and kingdoms, but we live in a democracy uh, and represented democracy at that. The thing is, every time you look at a survey of the most trusted and least trusted uh, positions, politicians definitely rank right down there along with telemarketers. It's fascinating to me that these are the people who we actually have to sort of we, we vest our trust in them to represent us what do you make of the fact that we constantly say we don't trust our politicians and is that okay i, I would say i don't trust the surveys and i don't mean that i don't think people don't trust politicians i think they often have um widespread contempt for them but their practice doesn't always suggest that i mean our practice as as ordinary people citizens because i think you know i mean new zealand is true even, even more so than england most people vote uh, most people are willing to um, fall in line with the decisions made by Parliament. I think most people would be surprised and horrified if they found out that their politicians were taking bribes and uh, acting in the the really truly venal way that um, they may sort of assert they do when you they're all in it for themselves. Uh, there is an expectation that uh, the politicians will, and a, a grounded expectation. Most of our politicians are not corrupt. They do have uh, sincere commitment to public service. They are making the decisions uh, the best they can. So I think, you know, there's an overstatement on the part of people when they say they just don't trust them. Um, that said, we do, we, both New Zealand and the UK, have a very aggressive attack media, which is great in some respects and terrible in, in others, I think. It's designed to find and exploit, uh, expose hypocrisy and, and criticise um, uh, inconsistencies and so on. And so we force politicians into a certain kind of a dance in which they are willing participants, which I think does spur a kind of cynicism and lack of trust in at least some sort of a way. They just don't say what they mean, etc. But if they say what they mean, you crucify them and they'd suffer uh, politically, etc., etc. We've built up an un unhealthy sort of relationship. And then it's competitive and we're all prone to believe the worst of our enemies to some extent, or those with whom we disagree. Um, but still, I mean, you say all that. Nonetheless, New Zealand and the UK, we don't look at, mostly, uh, those with whom we disagree politically as, as enemies. It's not an existential crisis uh, if the other side wins an election. They're not going to round you up and put you up against a wall, etc. That said, does it matter? I think, yes, it does, actually. Uh, you know, the, this is a, a kind of corrosive attitude that does 
rob institutions of what they have to offer. And by all means, you should you should be slow to uh, accept um, any assurance made by a politician. But uh, the sort of attitude that that is deeply cynical and and contemptuous of them, I think, is unjustified and and pretty destructive. I mean, back in was it just over four years ago, uh, a member of parliament in Britain was murdered by a um, nasty man. Um, and there was a brief and sort of quite welcome outpouring of public love for their MPs, actually, recognition that these are people who uh, um, are working pretty hard and get a lot of things wrong, but that are doing a very, very valuable role. And uh, the brief period was sort of recognising the, the breadth of work that was being done and the damage that um, that sort of a thoroughgoing cynicism and hostility can, can wreak. But I think both of you have alluded to the polarization of politics that we've seen and that we've also seen, uh, particularly in America, I think, uh, with Congress, but I think to a lesser extent, both in New Zealand and the UK, a real gridlock um, in terms of it seems that our parliaments often are not able to, for whatever reason, make truly... Uh, meaningful change in many areas of sort of our political discussion that the, the same conversations over and over again and in the in the mix and in the gaps we start seeing and particularly in the US this has long been the case um, but in the New Zealand and the UK there have been some significant examples recently of the courts stepping in and kind of trying to see if they could might be able to make the change if, if, if our representatives aren't willing to Richard I know that you have some particular thoughts on this and I thought that just in the in, in the context of you know Know, basically who do we trust and, and if we're seeking justice um, if we want there to be right, right and wrong that we can we know that we can seek as people um, you know why not the courts well courts are great for a number of things but they have limitations which um, the best judges uh, entirely recognize and insist upon so you know a, a trial is a sort of artificial world uh, it's got a bounded task determining if such and such happened and, and what the law is to apply to it and courts and judges are very good at keeping us to our commitments in one way. So that's in one sense what the law is. You know, we, we made a decision in the past uh, or you made a decision in contracting or whatever else it might be. And we are going to take that now as the basis for what happens. Uh, not going to abandon it because it's no longer convenient or, or whatever else it may be. But I think the temptation, which you do see uh, around the world, um, it's, it's characterized the United States for a long time, is to take that, that capacity that courts have to do justice in a particular framework, it's an indispensable capacity, and just to try and blow that up to uh, a responsibility for the justice of the law itself. So courts and judges are good at the justice of applying the law faithfully and fearlessly without favour to, to the parties. Um, that, that provides no capacity whatsoever to decide whether the law itself is in the right shape or not, or what it should be. And that requires judgment, choice, responsibility. It requires reasoning about right and wrong and, and justice and rights, uh, but it's, it involves choice, actually. It involves um, making a decision and taking responsibility for it, which politicians do, actually. Um, we have a process for holding them to account and criticising them for their failures in this respect. I think the problem, in a way, is we've, um, going back to part of our earlier conversation, much of the shared language, which maybe we did have in, in earlier times with um, various problems, uh, has, has slipped away. And... The language of rights and human rights, uh, in one sense, has filled part of the void. And human rights are precious and important, but the language of rights does a bit too much work in our, our moral discussion, I think. And, and relatedly, we, there's a sort of confusion, because human rights get some recognition in law, and they, there's sort of an assumption that 
often an assumption and sometimes express, expressly, that judges will be better at knowing what our rights are, our human rights are. Uh, and judges, as I say, are pretty good at holding us to our legal rights when they've been established and laid down. Uh, not so good at making the sort of open-ended decisions about uh, what our rights are, what we disagree. You know, so should there be a right to uh, assist someone else in suicide or be assisted? Uh, a judge has no insight into that question greater than any other um, human being, as, again, the best judges realise, I think, and recognise. So it's a, the fact you trust the judge not to take a bribe in deciding your, your dispute, or you trust the judge to fearlessly hold thought, even when it's inconvenient and a mob is gathered outside the courtroom, which you know, should have that trust and judges uh, should, should live up to it. Um, doesn't follow the other right ones to be making um, the choices about uh, the kind of community we should be or what justice requires in this uh, contested sort of field of, of human um, activity. I mean, so I absolutely share the analysis of, as it were, the division of labour between what the court should be doing and what the legislature should be doing. And I think, Jeremy, just going back to your point, so Britain has experienced legislative deadlock for about three years, but that logjam has just cleared as of December with a very decisive victory for the Conservative government. And I think the trauma of the national debate around Brexit has been so intense in part because of the, the logjam, which was given really by two quite finely balanced electoral outcomes in 2015 and 2017. But I think I think that's out of keeping with Britain's with the Westminster history and sort of pattern. And I, and I think looking forward, we'd expect to see governments with the ability to govern. In America, it seems the logjam might be more structural. One of the things that political polarisation does is it makes it very difficult to achieve cross-party consensus when any one of the three branches, Senate, House of Representatives or President, are not a lot. If they're not all in the same party, then you have to build cross-partisan consensus to get any legislation through in that context. So I, so I don't know whether the activism, certainly what critics would regard as activism on the part of the Supreme Court in the US, is in part a reflection on and a response to the failure of the normal legislative process. Could, could you just talk to that, Richard? I, d I don't know if that's there. It partly fuels it, unfortunately, both driven and sharpened up by the polarisation, but it's also partly a driver of it. So I think there's no no way in the world President Trump would be president, but for the feature of um, uh, the significance of the president's role in appointing judges. A great many conservative voters who, frankly, despise Trump, voted for him because they thought, well, someone's got to choose the next lot of judges or the next judge or two, and it absolutely can't be Hillary Clinton. So um, Trump will do a better job on, on that question, probably, and everything else is, is secondary. And we should hold our nose while, while voting for him. I mean, yeah, that, no, that, exactly. That's the calculation in 2016 for many Conservative voters. Yeah, no, for, for millions of voters, I'm sure, which is a real distorting feature of, of their polity. No, so there is a self-reinforcing thing, which is, uh, look, the political authorities can't make decisions, so we have to. Problem is when the court makes a decision of, of and these hot button questions and a number of them, it makes them in a way that no one else can be involved in. Uh, you know, it's the marginal judge, so it's not even all of the judges. You know, most of the their votes are assured. It's it's the one or two in the middle, uh, or the one you know the next one to be appointed. Uh, and you know, this is sort of a generational um, victory or defeat, uh, or maybe even you know, is the presented as permanent. You know, you lose the Supreme Court case, uh, and that's it. No, no recourse, no comeback. I mean, nominally, you could amend the Constitution, but that's impossible. Uh, so I mean, it, it certainly drives and makes, it makes the fight for presidential um, elections vastly more consequential 
seemingly so than, than they were in, in sort of the American past. If you don't secure victory in, in the Supreme Court, uh, you know, you're in one sense socially damned. They speak about Supreme Court judgments as sort of sanctifying an outcome, which I, I find just uh, bewildering talk, really. You know, this is really serious moral or political controversy and needs a decision. And uh, by all means, we should make a, we should argue about it and make a decision. But the thought that the right way to do that is by sort of securing a presidential victory eight years ago, such that your, your man or woman is on the court and can make the right call, I think is, is um, just very, very odd. The way same-sex marriage was, was legalized in, in various different countries. Uh, so Britain and New Zealand, parliamentary discussion, decision, uh, some free votes, etc. I mean, Ireland, public referendum, uh, the United States, uh, litigation. Uh, and, and I think the legacy of that partly, maybe, maybe not with same-sex marriage, probably to some extent, definitely with abortion, the legacy is uh, an intensification of political polarization. The room for compromise is gone, the sort of sense that we have to come to some settlement together that we can live with uh, and that we can contest later because you know, nothing is settled in politics and we can always fight it out later. That's just, um, that's, I would, say, I would say absent from America, that's too strong, but it's, it's certainly muted, largely absent, and it's not a good way to, to be governed. Uh, obviously, we should have been having you, Tom, uh, come and speak with us in person. But what has uh, got in the way of that is the COVID-19 pandemic. It was interesting seeing the response to that. And this whole pandemic has performed a kind of stress test on our trust in institutions and kind of the reserves of, of our goodwill in society. So I'm interested in your thoughts as someone who's been thinking about trust for quite a while, that almost this has been an experiment for seeing how trust works within society when it's really tested. I'm interested in your thoughts on what you've seen. I think the simple point is that we have seen the reservoirs of trust in government displayed that these extraordinary changes to our lives have been just adopted by populations, certainly in the UK, which is the context I know, very quickly and easily. People have just shifted to that. And it's not that the police have had to do no work enforcing it, but they've had to do relatively little proportional to, to the demands, the, the expectations that, that were laid down. I think we've come out, so the initial period was definitely one where politics was put on the back burner. There was a sense we all pulled together. There was a rally around the flag effect in the polls where support for the prime minister and government went up. Politics has returned in relation to responses to the coronavirus which I think is a matter of real regret and is actually illustrative of the, the challenges in the public environment now. So there's now an identifiable left-leaning progressive position on the lockdown and a right-leaning position, etc. And um, and I so I so I think the appeal to experts actually goes not nearly as far as you might hope and and think. The legacy is going to be twofold. So what, one element of the legacy will be just w when we do the the debrief as it were after the coronavirus has passed who knows when that will be it might be might still be another year's time um when that debrief happens how well did our institutions cope and i think the answer will be not nearly as well as we hoped that they would i don't know whether that will be shattering myself i think there'll be lessons learned and and hopefully the government will become more adaptive and i think one of the principal lessons there will be can we implement more vigorous debate between experts and incorporate that into the policy making process. So rather than have a committee of experts who are tasked to come up with consensus, which in practice means that 
the chair exercises disproportionate influence in part by selecting who's on the committee. That seems to me a bad way in general of making decisions. What we're trying to institutionalise is disagreement amongst experts and then some kind of mode of evaluating the, the disagreement. So in the UK, we've had very different epi epidemiological advice from London-based teams and Oxford-based teams. And it just happens that the London-based teams are the ones who had the ear of government at the, at the start. But we need that diversity of view, of viewpoint in the decision-making process. No, I mean, I think it was understandable that the experts were, uh, the chief medical officers were flanking the prime ministers in the early stages. And there's sort of a sensible demonstration. We take technical expertise seriously and that we're not, we're not flying by night and so on. That said, there was a risk which became more obvious here, I think, over time, but here being the UK. Technical expertise is not a substitute for political responsibility and judgment. And there are some matters on which technical expertise can only take you so far. The, the diversity amongst technical experts is highly significant and became more obvious as time went by. It became more obvious to the politicians and to the public. I imagine the experts in question knew it all along. But the risk, relatedly, that technical expertise will be leveraged into uh, political authority is a real one. Um, and so keeping, making such use of the multiplicity of experts as you can is obviously vital without letting that, that expertise be played out into uh, fields and, and um, areas to which it, it has no, no proper play. Part of the complexity is, so, you know, obviously we both sit in, Rich and I sit in the university, we are kind of experts in our field and surrounded by, we work with experts, that's, that's, the, that's the kind of field we work in. And there's a, there's a difficulty because some, some academics Many academics want nothing to do with the politics. They just they just want to do what they're good at, and they just and they want to offer that on a, as completely objective and impartial a basis as possible, and feed it into the policy making process, so that politicians can then make can can work out what the moral political trade offs are, explain the reason for that, and then take ownership of that. And that's completely right and proper. And so we've definitely seen academics feeling a bit burnt by the sense that they their the halo, as it were, was kind of being abused so that politicians didn't have to take responsibility for decisions which are properly political decisions. So that's one group of academics, and I suspect that's the majority. I think that's, that's true of most academics. There are also other academics who are highly politically engaged, and the danger is that the borderline between expert advice and political questions becomes quite blurry in those contexts. From the political perspective, it's very difficult to work out who's who and which is which. That makes a genuinely complicated situation and that also feeds into pub public discussion. I think public are becoming aware that there's, there's, there's di diverse levels of political engagement on the part of, of academics. I think we're in for some fragile, febrile times. So most, you know, the populist moment, so-called, Kind of 20, which 2016 might have inaugurated and which has been a feature of certainly European and American politics in recent years. I think there's quite a clear line between, I mean, a number of factors, but the financial crisis of 2008 was a significant contributing factor to that and a sense that the, uh, the, the, so, the social, con that wasn't the only one, there's others as well, but um, a combination of factors meant there was a sense that the social contract in some sense had been broken. And I think it's highly likely that some of those trends are going to be re-exacerbated by, by the current crisis. 
but obviously the elites of higher learning have an outsized role in in guiding or suggesting a set of moral ideas that could bind us together as as two people who are within um, that kind of institution who maybe have taken some less than popular um, stands how do you think that trust in academia is going um, and do you think that there is a, a threat to that sort of trustworthiness of the institution as one that can actually be trusted to really wrestle with these ideas? So, yes, I think there is a problem. I mean, it varies by by field. And uh, as Tom said before, in one sense, uh, you know, most academics on on most subjects maybe just doing their their level best to, um, to find truth in the, in the corner in which they're engaged. But I think you've got a problem of groupthink on many subjects, actually. Um, including sometimes on the substance of, of the academic endeavour rather than just on controversies that wash over. The UK Academy, I think we were ground zero for uh, the subset of, of the community that was deeply opposed to Brexit. I think 90% of academics are possibly, I'm making the figure up, but I think it was something like that, reported figures um, voted to remain, which obviously is just a series of, of perfectly defensible and plausible political choices on the part of... Um, individuals but if it ends up being the case as it as it almost was for a while that this major part of society uh, the academy defines itself partly by sharing one side of a political controversy that's that's challenging and you see that in the states and, and as well as you sort of alluded to um, and if you know if you end up with part of the community viewing the academy as as the enemy the political enemy then I mean that's disastrous for for the academy it's disastrous for popular participation in higher education in all sorts of ways. It's disastrous, frankly, for public funding of universities. I mean, the worry you could have is uh, is that if the academy views, if it's sort of a two-way antipathy, uh, so we ordinary members of a community look at the academy as, as though they have nothing but disdain for them, and, well, you, you return um, like for like, and, you know, nothing wrong with having an intellectual elite. I think it's sort of inevitable. Um, but ideally, an intellectual elite that was committed to the good of those with whom they shared a, a place and a, um, a sort of a political life, uh, and it was committed to engaging them respectfully and so on, um, and then vice versa. Uh, and that, that there is, or at least has been in, in some peril. Possibly the whole COVID experience will um, beat it back to some extent. So obviously, there's a great deal of public hope and confidence in scientists here and there and, and coming up with um, technical solutions with, with some reason. I mean, in broad brush terms, the natural sciences are, because they've got such a secure methodology, they're just going to get on with doing natural science. The social sciences and humanities are, it's, it, it's a more, um, it's more significant when there's a very significant proportion of academics who share quite a distinctive way of looking at the world, which is dissonant with how the public view that. So the, the Brexit debate was, was, really where this became very evident for me and I, I'd come out as as voting leave. The issue is I think not in itself that you might get a significant majority of academics who make the individual judgment which ha which happens to go in a particular direction. I don't I, I, there's all sorts of completely benign explanations for that and leave and remain they're both reasonable people who went both sides and there's a proper debate to be had on it. I think the issue arises when because there is a overwhelming preponderance of people who view something you know take one side and you then get permission to disparage and and pathologize the, the the alternative viewpoint and if you're just not exposed to people actual people who who think the contrary then that becomes a very easy thing to do 
and in a context of political polarization that that uh, the, the speed with which people move into that becomes quicker and quicker and then suddenly you get the academy um it becomes to look like there is the academy rather than an institution which hosts a plurality of voices that becomes a kind of sense of a consensus and it becomes an engaged consensus it becomes a participant in whatever the political con- controversy is and i think that's a very very dangerous position to be in and i think we are i think there is an increasing awareness of that in the public and the academy will lose political legitimacy over time if that if that carries on so i think a proper concern for the health of the academy would would see really clear attempts to promote viewpoint diversity you know genuine um permission for people to think across the whole spectrum of political views i had a question actually for tom arising out of what we began with actually i suppose with the the general financial crisis and the, the bankers in 2007. And that was a crisis of a lack of trust in one way, of course. You know, so financial institutions are starting to tumble and there's you know, effectively a, to simplify enormously a great big bank run underway. But partly it's a crisis because the trust that we had was not warranted. So we did, well, we collectively let various um, arrangements run and investors were insufficiently um, sceptical and so on. And suddenly, you know, the... The lack of, or the, the excess of trust, rather, sorry, is exposed. And then that ripples into a, a lack of trust, but then with some reason. How does one handle that, uh, that dialectic, I suppose, or is it just overreaction in these contexts is to be expected? So it's very easy to talk about trust and what a great thing it is. And uh, if we don't also have trustworthiness, then the, the rails come off very quickly. In a way, that's the thread that I'm, the needle that I'm trying to thread in my work on trust, that it's holding together the moral dimension, the moral expectation that's involved in trust, the reliance on moral character or the kind of culture with the a rational expectation, a, a grounded expectation that people will be trustworthy. So if, if you don't have that grounded expectation, then there's a bunch of times when you should not be trusting. There's a tricky task to work out when your trust should be in effect based on evidence and when you might want to have supererogatory trust where you... So supererogatory trust would be something like, think of that episode in Les Miserables where Bishop Muriel says to Jean Valjean, and you forgot the candlesticks. And he gives him the candlesticks, not because he has any reason to think that Valjean will not squander this and go and live a dissolute life and end up back in the wrecks in prison, but as a supererogatory act, a kind of demonstration of trust, give him the opportunity to put his life back back on lock, you know, rebuild his life. And he takes that. So it's so that's supererogatory trust. It's going beyond any evidence that you have. And we want to say there's moments of moral heroism there. And yet the normal running trust needs to be undergirded by trust by trustworthiness. And the, the banking crisis illustrates that. And you know, I suppose I see that as a broader challenge that we face between we've we've learnt the power of incentives to structure our communal lives and to change behaviour, and many good things have come out of that. And when you repeatedly assume that as your framework and your basis for modifying behaviour, you end up with a situation where you erode the moral climate, the moral culture, the expectations of moral character, which are actually needed to undergird the whole thing. And so the, the the danger of erosion of, as it were, the moral capital of a society, that's that is one of the hinge moments that I think we might be at. And we we are, and the debate around free trade, international trade, is in effect a version of that. So to what extent do we need to 
reshore supply chains? Do we need to accept economic inefficiencies for the sake of rebuilding other things which matter and actually in the long run matter for economic efficiency? The other big one that's come up recently is the idea that there are institutions and, and parts of society that many of us had sort of unquestioningly trusted. And then with the Black Lives Matter movement and the protests, we've seen that there are whole swathes of society uh, where people have a very different experience of those institutions. Um, and, and suddenly, um, you know, there's a sense of what that does to our trust in the police. Um, but, you know, basically just in all of these different, in, in the core or the, the character of the institutions that we thought we knew. As people are sort of agitating for change um, and, and a re revisiting of the core or the character of those institutions, how is it possible, and this is related to what uh, Richard was kind of asking, how is it possible for an institution to remake itself or does it have to have sort of an outside force come in to make sure that it has changed in order for us to be able to trust in it properly again? I don't think it has to be the latter. So I think institutions can rebuild themselves from within and if the people who, who make up the institutions and the, the sort of leadership within them is committed to change, then, then they can change. It may often be very helpful or necessary in some context for, for an external um, stimulus from higher authority or from, um, with the example of police, you know, just from those whom you're policing. So policing, certainly in the sort of Anglo-New Zealand tradition, is policing by consent and you need the support of, um, uh, of those um, over whom you're exercising authority. And the same is true for law more generally, actually. So if you've got a problem with part of your community or, with, or the whole of it over time, where they are going to look at you as um, as not having their best interests at heart, then that's that's a major, I mean, it's an operational problem, partly, um, but it's a sort of structural problem. I mean, the United States has a somewhat different model of policing, I think. It's more, and maybe that's part of the problem, it's going to be increasingly analogous to, to the military in various ways. I mean, I think you know, much American policing must still be non-violent and non-coercive knowing how you're seen uh, and then working to change how you're seen so that people can uh, repose trust in you, I think is, is um, that's the challenge. Uh, but then it's sort of vital, I think the part of the worry you would have is that if the, if the institution is undermined by a sort of erosion of trust in it more generally, or further undermined, then you're not going to get it doing the job it needs to do. You just can't do without a police force. Maybe it doesn't have to be a quasi-military one. Maybe that's a disastrous thing. But you, the, the challenge is to rebuild the institution, not to rip it down. And that's the, the worry. Um, that's it's the challenge that protest movements often have, I think. How to be, how to affect change without um, being excessive. And how to be constructive. Because ultimately you have to be able to build what you believe is good, not just point to what is bad. Yeah, that's exactly. I mean, I think that probably in the United States, that is the, the hope that is, is being made, that you will end up with a police force. And also that a diversion um, of the responsibilities, which is what you know a lot of the protesters are talking about, and actually um, building up other institutions like social work and and other ways of dealing to or, or meeting the needs of the community. Oh, sure, you might over rely on your police force. I think um, uh, maybe they do to think you know law enforcement is some sort of all encompassing social institution, and probably it's, it is a strategic one. It's, a, it's sort of nested within a, within a whole lot of other relationships. Um, but it, it certainly can't compensate for, or it's going to be distorted if it tries to compensate for, for all the other various arrangements that should be in place. And I think there's a real challenge here for, for leadership in these institutions, because, you know, as, as you point out, uh, Jeremy, the danger is that there are constituencies, groups of people who have felt excluded by institutions and that the, the invitation to trust has not been extended to them or that that's been one that's made no sense to them. 
And so I think I think there's right now we're at a kind of listening moment and to try and work out what what are the points of what what are those constituencies who have not been certainly not trusted and have felt excluded. And in the UK context, racial and ethnic minorities, that's 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 a particular there's a listening moment there to work out. So how, how we go forward, how we how we build build trust if. Uh, in places if it was never there in the first place. That's a real challenge for leaders who've come in through an institution and they've maybe come in and, as it were, this has been the way things have done and we just haven't had to pay attention to these voices before and now there's a clear awareness that that's uh, absolutely necessary and right and proper to do so. And so so reconfiguring the institution to cope, to to, uh, to ensure that those voices are not just listened but they're, in, they're participating in that institution is a real challenge. Just to finish off, I thought just bringing it back uh, to the very personal from the societal, do you have any thoughts or any uh, advice for how, uh, from from your own experience, of how people may act or what they might do in order to cultivate greater trust um, and become more trustworthy and to cultivate trust within their own communities? Whoa. <laughs> I mean, I think the work of building trust is is essentially small scale that you you start off with relationships that you're committed to, and you 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 stick with it over time. That's that's the basic thought. I mean, maybe a willingness to do to take on tasks that are not just the glorious ones or the attractive ones, but ones that need to be undertaken. Because partly you're showing, I think it's the point about sharing a life again. If you can show that you are a person who's committed to something other than yourself uh, and your 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 own greater glory, then that's being being someone in whom trust is um, understandably reposed, um, because you've proven yourself over time to have a commitment to to the good of others in a way that they can bank on, even if you know subject to verification and, and so on. And I think forgiveness is a real challenge for us culturally right now. So we're all going to make mistakes. We do make mistakes. How do we deal with with those mistakes that we've made there's a real danger that you know you make an error bang that's it and um and if if we're individually people of who who are into restoration and forgiveness in our relationships i think that that has a transformative effect partly it makes it hard doesn't it to speak the truth as you see it if the truth as you see it and is articulated is going to result in a massive lifelong social penalty then the understandable and maybe rational response is to to obscure, dissimulate. Coping strategies that people had in, in Eastern Europe, to go back to your point before, Tom, you know, not great for, for living well, I think, when you've got to guard yourself very carefully and not just be judicious and discreet, but really uh, watch out for uh, for the hostile attack. And that's, that's it's hard. And I mean, pe- many people have had to live well under those circumstances, but that's sort of as about as problematic a context to develop personal integrity as you could imagine I think maybe that's wrong maybe this is you know it's a great <laughs> proving ground for the development of integrity but certainly looking at it it seems hard it's not a great way to live no no I think I mean, there are some some great reflections arising out of the experience of living under totalitarian rule uh, they're instructive but god willing none of us will have to undergo them all right well Tom and Richard thank you so much for joining us um, for the Maximum Institute podcast uh, this month it's been a real pleasure to talk with both of you and um, yeah thank you for your time you're very welcome. It's been a massive pleasure. Thank you very much. 
Thanks for joining us for this month's podcast. If you'd like to hear more from Maxim Institute and the rest of our work, head to maxim.org.nz where you can also sign up for our forum monthly e-news and you can also sign up for event invitations so you can make sure that you don't miss out on Tom Simpson's 2021 Sir John Graham Lecture. From me and all the rest of the Maxim Institute team, goodbye for now. Matewa.